This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're doing a novel. We're doing The Wanting Seed, and I'm going to kick us off. Anthony Burgess published The Wanting Seed in 1962, the same year he published the more famous Clockwork Orange. Both novels are about overbearing states that use rather bizarre tactics to maintain control. In The Wanting Seed, the state is trying to deal with overpopulation. Initially, it tries to encourage homosexuality and asexuality, but when the carrot fails, out comes the stick. By the middle of the novel, there are gangs of police arresting pregnant women and beating up protesters. This causes too much upheaval, and so the state adopts a different tack. It begins encouraging fertility, and it also begins conscripting its citizens into fake wars and having them kill one another. Worse, it starts feeding the remains of the dead soldiers to the rest of the population in tin cans. The state shows it can adopt whatever set of cultural attitudes are necessary to keep people on side. Its real goal is stability, not any particular value set. As all of this is going on, there's some remnant of a love story. A woman loses a baby. She gets pregnant again by her husband's brother, a civil servant who pretends to be gay to get ahead. She flees to the countryside, and eventually she has twins. The husband discovers the adultery, but before he can act, he is caught up in a protest and arrested by the security forces. He escapes prison and goes looking for his wife, but before he can find her, he is conscripted into the army. Initially given a desk job teaching raw recruits, he is sent to the front after it's been discovered that he's been teaching critical thinking. Miraculously, he survives the battle. When he gets out, he finds his wife, and presumably they reconcile. Politically, I would describe Burgess as something of a conservative anarchist. In an interview in the 70s, he described himself as a Jacobite. I suspect that if he could wipe the slate clean, he'd up for some kind of monarchism. But Burgess's form of monarchism is incompatible with modernity, and in a modern context, this pushes him into a kind of anarchist posture. He's critical of the modern state in all its forms, and there is nothing a modern state could do to satisfy him. Like Curtis Yarvin, he'd restore the Stuarts if he could. So, in a Burgess novel, whatever the state tries to do, it ends up committing unspeakable crimes. While liberal readers like A Clockwork Orange, they have a harder time with The Wanting Seed, because culturally this novel is much more obviously reactionary. It clearly works off some Catholic or pseudo-Catholic notion of a natural way of life that is disrupted by modernity and by the modern state. It features a discussion in which it is posited that all political conflict can be understood as a debate between Pelagius and Augustine, between optimistic and pessimistic accounts of human nature. As an aside, it is also full to bursting with essentialist remarks about gay people and various ethnic groups. Burgess himself denounced Clockwork Orange on the grounds that it was too easy for liberals to appropriate. In the 80s, he said, and I quote, The book I am best known for, or only known for, is a novel I am prepared to repudiate, written a quarter of a century ago, as Jus d'Esprit knocked off for money in three weeks, it became known as the raw material for a film which seemed to glorify sex and violence. The film made it easy for readers of the book to misunderstand what it was about, and the misunderstanding will pursue me until I die. The fact that Burgess has distanced himself from Clockwork Orange makes it easier for liberal audiences to go on liking it. If he really wanted to cause them some trouble, he should have said that it espouses Jacobite values. The problem with political naturalism is that the concept of the natural is itself unnatural. To suggest that there is a natural is to posit a dualism. It is to create a dichotomous antagonism. 
In the hands of the Protestant reformers, it was this antagonism that fostered the rebellions that tore down the old Catholic kings. If we rebel against the state when the state acts in an unnatural way, it becomes incredibly important to have a consensus on the definition of the natural. But the word is too fuzzy. There's no way to maintain a consensus without constantly persecuting anyone who starts thinking too critically about it. It is for this reason that Western medieval political theory offers no safe haven for us to return to today. That said, this book has its moments. At one point, the husband is passed over for promotion because he's not gay. In effect, his boss refuses to promote him to try to make some kind of moralizing point about his lifestyle. There is something of the contemporary tendency to cancel here. At this stage in the novel, it is not a crime to be heterosexual, but it's not good for your career to be publicly known to have such tastes. The state is not actively repressing heterosexuals, but there is plenty of ad hoc social pressure to conform. This ad hoc social pressure to conform responsibilizes the individual for structural problems. None of the characters in this novel are to blame for the fact that there are more people than the state knows how to handle. The state has failed to secure the food supply, and it has resorted to a pathetic, loathsome peer pressure campaign, desperately trying to put the cost of solving the population problem on the backs of its ordinary citizens. Does it really matter whether these citizens are good or bad by nature? One thing medieval theologians share with modern states is this notion that everything comes down to whether particular people are, by nature, saints or sinners. But surely all the problems of this novel could have been solved with a marginally better state agricultural policy. People are only as good or as bad as their circumstances allow. In my view, it is the state that is ultimately responsible for the state of affairs that issues in human behavior. But I want to hear what Helen thinks. So I'm going to pass it off to her. Okay, well, um, I thought a lot of things. I, I have a bunch of notes about sort of like, you know, novelistic issues in the book and, and themes and this kind of thing. But I kind of wanted to talk more generally about um, this idea that you mentioned about, uh, you know, liberal readings and how, because this is something that's come up this week in the work, a project I'm working on, where it's very difficult, I think, to read something non-ideologically, obviously we always have a sort of, you know, a bent and a perspective of our own. Um, and I'll come on to that in a second in terms of maybe what's the difference between like an aesthetic taste and like some sort of like essential kind of, you know, ideological view, whatever. But um, I was thinking, you know, like what would, <laughs> what would the average liberal reader think of this and probably terrible, terrible, terrible things. And in a, a project that I'm doing at the moment, um, there's, uh, a person and an event that is quite um, sort of kaleidoscopically complex for various reasons, particularly um, that it's to do with sex. And it's very tempting to reduce sex into an opposition um, in liberal culture. And the whole point of sex is that it's irreducible. Um, but so I was thinking a little bit, by the way, so I wanted to first of all say that Nina wrote an amazing article this week which I thought was very good and very apropos of our podcast, because like a lot of what we talk about, I think we we share first principles, or we we maybe um, you know have have a certain value. But that doesn't mean that our political perspectives are the same. And in fact, we disagree aesthetically and politically on a lot. And that's the point. I don't feel like um, there is a, a tendency to read something that might be reactionary. <laughs> in an essentially reactionary way, which elevates 
um, individual perspective. You know, I'm, I read a, a piece that um, Anthony Burgess wrote, wrote for the New, uh, New Yorker, essentially, you know, adopting a sort of Bartesian death of the author approach. And I agree in many ways with that death of the author approach, but like not universally. I mean, like there's some sort of other aspects that I think we can consider. So he's, you know, he's not identifying himself with, um, you know, a, a political perspective in his work. And let's say even if there is a political perspective, can we essentialize it as this makes this person utterly disgusting and this piece of work must be burned in a book burning, which is, of course, you know, the reactionary response. So you can have a reactionary response to something reactionary. You know, it's like the... Lacanian idea of the hysteric and the disease, you can be ill and also a hypochondriac at the same time. So I sort of think a lot of our issues today, we have, you know, we've talked about this so many times, that humans are born twice into material reality and into language. We have a division at the level of our subjectivity. So things could be like materially true and then they take on this sort of supplementary, almost quote unquote, transcendent dimension. And this, you know, we enter into these culture wars where a, a political position that we might disagree with becomes to this like reactionary escalatory back and forth and I kind of think that like whilst we might say that there are some things that um, a non-woke person might agree with in this novel um, and be like look we've been vindicated this guy was ahead of his times and he saw it almost that sort of like even, even if somebody can have some not just to say that like a broken clock strikes twice per day or whatever, because they're, you know, reactionary people are responding to a material reality that they experience in a way, and it's not a way that I agree with. And I think that there's all sorts of forms of reactionary um, essentialism that one can adopt um, in one's work and thought. But by reading a future prediction into it, (laughs) I think you could even more essentialize what is being said when potentially this is just an aesthetic um, position that someone has. Uh, Can we say that everybody who likes um, doing hippie dancing and the idea of lying down in a field is a Nazi? No. to happen um and I yeah I think it is just I this wasn't a book I didn't enjoy this book personally that much um it's interesting what you say about the clockwork orange and I think this is interesting in terms of how we um um venerate certain uh artists maybe Kubrick for example there's lots to say there but um, and you know, I think there's of like very basic commentary you could say about overpopulation and the way that they are dealing with it, and the way that this is a highly a religious society, even though it's a society without religion, and leaving leaving childhood to the quote unquote lower classes and stuff. There's obviously lots that we can talk about there, but I I just sort of was struck by a sense reading it that there is a way in which even though a reader might be right in having um, an unpleasant reaction to something like this, that's within, that's not to say that they are universally right, but you know, they're, they're right in their experience. One can be wrong in one's essentialism regarding the political position of another. Probably doesn't make much sense, but 
There you go. All right. Let's hear what Nina thinks. After all, this was her pick. Uh, yes, I should also mention that it was a recommendation or a choice uh, suggested for us by Jonathan Stewart, who is part of the uh, Gnostic Wisdom Network, I think it's called. And Jonathan Stewart is a very interesting man, as is his network. Um, and I've appeared on there before. And I, I think so. Uh, bearing this in mind, I read this book, which I enjoyed very much, actually, as a, a reading task um not that it was a a a difficult task um i i it was difficult for me not to read this book in a gnostic spirit so i was looking out very much for any uh idea of a manichaean worldview and certainly we have the kind of inverted worldview we have this kind of uh extremely dystopian uh position on population and the various solutions uh political solutions that uh benjamin's outlined um i thought this book was uh absolutely uh fantastic i i think burgess uh, I, I understand why he's, uh, not remembered for this book and why he's not mentioned as much as perhaps Orwell and Huxley and other great dystopian writers of the 20th century. And I, I think it's for the reasons that you both, uh, uh mention, um, partly because, uh, of his, his politics. I, I think also partly because of his style. I mean, he's extremely, uh, idiosyncratic writer. I mean, the, the kind of language that's used in this text, and obviously he's very famous for creating Nadsat, the artificial language in A Clockwork Orange, which is basically Russian, but with some weird tweaks. Um, but here he's paying very great attention to the, I suppose, like the idiolects and the dialects of Britain. Um, and he's, he's sort of resurrecting a lot or using uh, perhaps words that were already falling into disuse at the time in the si- early 60s, kind of old-fashioned words to describe a world that is sort of vanishing. So it's very kind of um, evocative um, of a particular image of Britain and the way people might have spoken, even though it's set into this kind of dystopian uh, sort of, I, I suppose, near near future Um it's extremely interesting at the level of uh, this image of cyclical history and this idea that politics always kind of uh, tips between, yes, like this Pelagian Augustine thing. So the idea that either human beings are capable of goodness, I suppose, uh, that the idea that we are not born with original sin, um, but rather we can, in fact, uh, live up to, let's say, the Ten Commandments and that we are sort of fundamentally good as opposed to the idea that we are perhaps fundamentally bad. And, and I suppose these kind of binaries map onto all the other binaries, like whether we have a pessimistic or an optimistic worldview, whether we think that uh, uh, more people is good or fewer people is better. So so it's a very, like, uh, quite trippy book to read. It reminded me of... of, of you know, being really high <laughs> in some ways, uh, because these are the sort of thoughts you, you, you sort of entertain about, uh, I suppose, uh, whether there's one thing or whether there are two things or whether time is a sort of linear eschatological sort of passage or whether it is in fact cyclical. Uh, so it's very kind of metaphysically uh, complicated, which also makes him, I think, relatively unusual amongst British writers who tend to, I mean, I'm generalising horribly, but but let's say uh, empiricism, uh, you know, we, we classically oppose ourselves to the to the French and the Germans on this point. You know, we think that we are, 
even our philosophy is more sort of rationalist and empiricist, but not rationalist in the deranged idealist sense, but rather reasonable <laughs> in the small r sense. Uh, so I, so it's a very, yeah, very, very provocative book that does um, seem to point to something of a complicated pessimistic worldview, which is to say that this cyclical nature of politics itself and the solutions that humanity will come up with as Benjamin said, depend upon, in a, if you like, the structure of the, the state. At the same time, there are forms of resistance that are clearly based on some degree of instinct or human nature, again, which, which you know, from a sort of perspective um, today would, would appear to be uh, uh, indeed uh, not just reactionary, but somehow... Uh, dangerous, you know, the idea that let's say women are instinctively uh, drawn to having children, for example, you know, this points to a kind of idea of a telos, you know, sort of deep Aristotelianism, um, hardcore natural law, that's all going on there. So so there's a very interesting kind of tension between the sort of imposition of the state and its, and its various bureaucratical manifestations. You know, I think he's extremely good at depicting the corruption of bureaucracy, which is something we talk about a lot, I think, in one way or another, that the, the way in which institutions themselves get taken over and captured. And as as you say, I mean, there's something kind of shocking about the the forms of, um, I, I suppose, what is celebrated cynically in the first part of the book, at least, as, as a way of getting ahead. It is precisely pretending, let's say, to be gay, to be a eunuch. Um, there are uh, homosexuality cla evening classes. There are posters telling women not to reproduce. Uh, you know, it's it's <laughs> it's uh, uh, if you wanted a kind of yeah critique of a sort of Rainbow Reich idea. It's already here in 1962. Uh, and indeed, there are kind of some, uh, you know, interesting, uh, though, uh, again, treacherous comments about uh, immigration and the sort of loss of uh, ethnic culture and this uh, sort of image of a, homo a homogenized world um, and the kind of uh, things that follow from that. It reminded me a little bit in that respect of, although it's quite differently framed, but of um, Blow Up, you know, when we were looking at the, the this sort of period, um, Blow Up's a little bit later, but where you have these sort of strange wandering groups of, of tribes sort of crossing each other in, in London and this kind of transformation of the the city um, along these lines. Um, and I, you know, this kind of anti-hero again is a bit like the anti-hero um in Brazil as well. Someone someone who's enmeshed in, in bureaucracy in certain ways, is trying to get ahead, doesn't quite have the right, you know, uh status uh signifiers in the particular bureaucracy, but can see in other ways what is happening, you know, understands the fake war at the end and you know it's a it's like very oscillatory, disconcerting, like I say, quite trippy book. Um I, I think Burgess is overdue for something of a revival, perhaps, and not the Clockwork Orange Burgess, but perhaps the the more reactionary Burgess, if we want to put it like that. And I, I th but I think we should push more on Helen's points about interpretation and about the, I don't know how to put it, the extent to which even reading a novel today, it's like you can, if you like, construct the. The, the the liberal response or you know the the sort of contemporary dominant ideological response is also you are reading through this lens you know like it's 
it, whether you're for or against that, you can sort of work out what the position should be. And that's a very strange experience, right? Like we have it all the time. It's like, how do we know what the right and wrong thing to say is according to this ideology? And it's, yeah, I think there's something increasingly shocking perhaps the moment you step away from your screen and you read like I don't know I was trying to read Aristotle I was at a music festival the weekend and I decided to try and read some Aristotle and it's you know there's something like <laughs> mind-bending about uh this form of time travel um if you like to to reconstruct somebody's thought from 2000 years ago and yet and yet it's possible so there clearly is something that binds us uh to the past and to our nature um at the same time as we are always in one cycle one part of the cycle or another and this seems to be Burgess's uh point that there's no escape actually from these cycles of history and that and that you know politics just moves from a, a more or less repressive to a repressive regime and these questions of population and birth control are always there and there are more or less macabre solutions um and it's very bleak in this Gnostic way. The material world is human beings are a tin of spam on some level. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was very, very trippy and it did, um, obviously this is an era coming up to 68, which is a real sort of like cultural turning point in, um, in liberalism. And there is this sort of like experimental nature to a lot of art in the early 60s. Um, and it is quite hard to get, like it wasn't, it's not that it's just like random. And But I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying about like, you know, the sort of like, well, it's quite hard to get purchased or what's sort of being said really. But, um, and, and I think that's sort of like, again, I think there, it is quite hard to get purchased, but of course we would read it today with a reactionary liberal <laughs> lens basically um this is this totalitarianizing this essentialism this reducing of contradiction to opposition um is the reactionary symptom but um i was just going to say about you know like this is a it it really has um children of men has echoes of this novel um there's a lot of similarities to say with things like brazil but one thing that um i think is this genre, this sort of like institutional genre, the sort of horror of, dis- of institutions is something that's very particular to capitalism in that capitalism um, pretends to be neutral mm-hmm. and the pretending to be neutral. So you have these characters who um, see through the veneer and are so frustrated because it's like, how can we not see that this is all ridiculous? And obviously people are willing to go along with it. And um, But it, that is something that is very alienating that we experience in capitalism we have this ideology of meritocracy the ideology that things run smoothly that this, i was having a conversation with somebody yesterday who said something about oh we we need to get the neutral liberal journalist voice on this and i was like this is not neutral in the slightest but it is just our ideological tendency to to understand that we are in a neutral universe which we aren't or not even the universe we are in a neutral structure which of course we aren't and that's most infuriating yeah i i found so i like a couple of things about this novel a lot i like the fungibility of culture in this novel how the state can take any cultural position and use it to defend broadly the same order 
the same way of doing things, uh, radically different cultural positions. I think that's a great critique of accounts which suggest that particular views on cultural or social issues are inextricably bound up with particular economic positions. I don't think that uh, or, or particular political positions or, or regimes. Uh, there is a fungibility there. The, the thing that I, I also like the critique of Whig progress narratives of mm -hmm. the kind of modern liberal point A to point B. I guess part of what frustrates me about this book is this tendency to view like the only kind of cyclical theory of history that people seem to want to posit lately are kind of medieval Catholic theories. And there are other ways of doing cyclical theories of history. Like I uh, just on Political Theory 101, my other podcast, we just did an episode on Nizam al-Malk, who would be regarded as a very reactionary theorist today. I mean, he has a whole chapter in his book of governance on those who wear the veil saying that uh, you should do the opposite of whatever women tell you to do. Uh, but his cyclical theory of history suggests that you uh, have uh, a king who's chosen by God and endowed with wisdom. The king falls away through celestial accidents or the evil eye. And then there has to be a period of carnage uh, to, to wipe away that regime, and then some new person is endowed with, with wisdom. Or if you read Gore Vidal's book, Creation, you know, there a Persian theory of history is discussed where you have a, a group of, of step people who move into Persia, they set up shop, uh, they get uh, civilized. As they become civilized, they become less effective militarily, and then they have to be swept away by a new group of step people who come in. In, in Plato, I think Plato in the Republic, his cycle of regimes is a really complex mm. and intricate theory of history that uh, frames you know, people as, as changing in response to changes in the government. So that the way that people think and behave and what they value is shaped by changes in the government. And the government creates a type of person who creates a new type of government, who creates a new type of person, who creates a new type of government in this procession of you know, alternating between the form of the state and the form of the kind of person who exists under that state. In this account, you get this kind of dualistic Pelagius versus Augustine, good versus evil. This kind of tendency that you see in a lot of medieval political theory of either people are good or they're bad, and we either view them as good or as bad. And that always frustrates me. And I think part of the reason we have a hard time getting a lot of you know, liberal people to entertain the value of cyclical theories of history is that cyclical theories tend to so often be medieval Catholic theories uh, to the exclusion of all the other stuff that precedes modernity, both in the West and in other parts of the world. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. I was going to say that this is very, you know, there's a tendency to read Hegel as that um, synthesistic one or the other, <coughs> which, yeah, so, so having a sort of a battle of um, light versus dark, good versus bad. And I don't know what <laughs> Jonathan, who I know, uh, thanks for suggesting this, Jonathan, I don't know what um, Gnosticism would say about synthesis and Hegel, but I don't know, but obviously this isn't per se a Gnostic book. But, yeah, that, that dualism is, I don't think, is found in Hegel per se. 
Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I take Benjamin's point, and it's interesting. Yeah, precisely which cyclical notion of history we're we're interested in, and and it, you know, I, I think there's there's you could also read this book, um, not only as a sort of, uh, yeah. M- Mm, a Gnostic discussion of uh, Manichaean tendencies, but also as a, in a Buddhist way, or, you know, there are other precisely uh, theories of time as, as a kind of cyclical uh, relation. I'm also reminded of that kind of, uh, the meme where it's, I, I don't know, it's a, maybe it's a summary of some, some person I should know who said it first, but uh, the, you know, wit, uh, um, hard times create, Good men, good men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create bad times. Bad times create good men, strong men, or whatever it is. You, you must have seen this this meme, right? It's a it's another kind of cyclical idea. Um, and obviously, like we talk a lot, perhaps about the kind of decadence and the last days of Rome, and whether America is in a civilization in, in terminal or managed decline. Um, you know, you have a sort of weird gerontocracy. Uh, Pelosi 82 going to Taiwan. Uh, we published uh, in Compact Malcolm Cooney suggesting that she might be uh, America's Franz Ferdinand. <laughs> um, very naughtily. Um, but, you know, you have Biden who's clearly sort of too old to govern. You have a health minister in America who's clearly very unhealthy, uh, promoting things that aren't true. And, you know, medication for children. Uh, very, like, what is going on? I mean, this is like, if you wanted to map on palimpsest history, which I'm sure Benjamin has many, many thoughts about how we do this or whether we should do this or the problems of doing this. But of course, we always look to history for, um, I don't know, hints or precursors. Uh, and we try to sort of uh, put them together and say, well, this period resembles this one in some ways. And and of course, I, I, one of the most beautiful bits in this book, of course, I would like this, is the is the sort of paganistic fate in the middle. So after the sort of regime of the no population or, or you know, a, abortion and no children regime collapses, they have, there is a kind of uh, Dionysian paganistic pro-procreation uh, festival where everyone becomes, well, the men become extremely priapic. There's lots of kind of May Day dances and, and people are sort of celebrating fertility, you know. And, and again, it's done in this very precisely British way, like the British fate, the May, Maypoles, these kinds of uh, sort of, I, I don't know, symbols and icons of a pagan or, or a pre-Christian or fusion of pagan and Christian uh, values and, and ceremonies, which are specific to Britain in particular ways, uh, and it's very, it's very, very well done, I think, and very funny, very bawdy, very beautiful scene. Um, and yeah, and then the cannibalism, which kind of also sort of hints at Ballard in a way. And I wonder, I wonder about Ballard's relationship to Burgess. Uh, something I might might sort of uh, look into. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure Ballard read Burgess. Uh, Burgess, of course, also wrote 1985, which is his response to Orwell's 1984. And I read that book as a, as a teenager. And it did suggest that the states were very keen on killing philosophers. <laughs> uh, and I, and, and as, as Benjamin said earlier, I think this, this thing about, hmm, Burgess's position as some kind of anarchistic reactionary, you know, which, which is perhaps the philosopher's position in some ways. Um, or I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that this book is really Augustinian rather mm-hmm. 
I mean, I, it can be read in a Gnostic way, it can be read in lots of different ways, but I think at its core, this is an Augustinian book. This is a city of God kind of book about uh, trying to get by in a political situation that is not recoverable. And so much of Augustine's work is about trying to uh, get by in a Roman Empire that is coming apart, that is not recoverable. Yeah, and of course, I mean, Augustine has this Manichaean, you know, Augustine in his confessions, you know, discusses his earlier Manichaeanism, right? And then he breaks with it. And, and in a way, it's like to say, yes, the world is more ambiguous and more complicated. And we are not just either good or bad, but rather an admixture of good and bad. And, you know, that this is a kind of question of, of free will, but free will kind of not in a pure sense, you know, that we are somehow tainted but somehow also capable of being slightly better <laughs> yeah and augustine's work yeah it's compatible with continuing to have something like the roman state but it is not really designed to legitimate the roman state to the degree that say thomas aquinas's work fits neatly within kind of mm. medieval status narratives and so i think that's part of what draws a lot of people to augustine a lot of people who have lost confidence in the kind of government that we have. Uh, at the same time, I do think that there is, there, there's a lot of, of tendency in the movements that are interested in this stuff to want something like a Catholic monarchy. Mm -hmm. And those Catholic monarchies didn't work for reasons that people should talk about. Why, why didn't they work? Yeah, yeah, why not? They didn't work because they were predicated on a religious consensus that could not be maintained once large numbers of people were reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, once large numbers of people are reading the Bible and they're not all taught to read the Bible through a particular orthodox lens that is ingrained through an education system which is installed in every state in the system, uh, you know, once large numbers of people are just reading it, they're going to come up with all sorts of crazy interpretations. That's not to say that, oh, you know, uh, the wool was pulled from their eyes and they finally could see what the Bible really meant. I'm not making a, mm -hmm. a defense of uh, any particular Protestant view. Just once you have large numbers of people reading, they're not all going to agree on what a book like the Bible means. And you're going to get disagreement. And so if you have a concept of politics, which relies on that thicker religious consensus, the only way you can get that thicker religious consensus is by heavily controlling access to education and making sure that everyone who's educated is educated in a very particular stringent way. That reduces the flexibility of the state because everybody has too narrowly the same education. It reduces the ability of people to think in different kinds of ways and so reduces the ability of the state to adapt. Uh, and it it, uh, it put, puts you in a situation where once that regime is broken and there is more widespread reading of the text, you just get chaos. And modernity is a continuation of the chaos of the collapse of that Catholic consensus. The hubris in thinking that you can make that narrow uh, and that particular a view, that universal, uh, the pride that went into the Catholic political project has been its downfall, and modernity is the punishment for it. Yikes. <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, the thing is, in terms of consensus and the, the hubris of a certain non-dialectical universality, I mean, like this is obviously part of the issue that we're facing with corporate capitalism. And it's what we talk about every fucking week. <laughs> Basically. Yeah, I mean, Christianity is depicted in this novel. Uh, there's a kind of Christian family uh, who's uh, the sister of the, the main uh, female protagonist uh, lives uh, in a kind of rural Christian idyll. In the, the regime that's crumbling, this old-fashioned Christianity has been uh, forbidden, um, but there are still people who follow it uh, in certain ways and celebrate the particular days. Um but but even that Christianity is sort of uh, in a way condemned by the novel, or or the or the, the man who represents the goodness of the old idea of Christianity is is in a sense also punished in the novel. Um, so it's not straightforward that that's the solution either, right? Like that you can simply go back to previous models. And I think I think this is also Girard's point. It's like once the you know, how you solve the sacrificial crisis once people understand the mechanism and the mechanism needs to be a new mechanism. <laughs> so this is the problem. I mean, you, you you kind of, humanity has a permanent sacrificial crisis in that sense because the mechanisms are always being uh, uh, revealed. And I yeah, I think this point about interpretation is a very interesting one. I mean, materially, of course, you have the invention of the printing press. You have the possibility of propagation. You have, you know, increased literacy. It's not just Luther, but, you know, you have this moment where precisely people can uh, think for themselves on the basis of a translation of a book that was otherwise perhaps more mysterious. I mean, this is the story we're told anyway about the, you know, the way in which a certain kind of interpretive hermeneutics develops um, in relation to uh, the Bible in in particular. Um, and yeah, and, and I think we can see maybe this kind of grasping today for some sense of a value system, even though we, we can't really use those words. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think when we understand the well-meaning uh, desire behind people f to want to be good, to want to have the right values, the scrupulosity that we see, you know, of course it's used for basic psychological motives, competition, blah, blah, blah. Of course, people are like this but um at the same time i you know and this would make me more of a pelagian i suppose maybe that i i do think that people are fundamentally good and that they are grasping for the good even when the outcomes of what they are doing are sometimes horrific and obviously this week we've seen the closure of the tavistock gender identity center um you know after much uh, investigation and criticism of the the way that center was uh acting um and i've been thinking a lot about whether what happens in regimes where where a particular idea falls uh particularly an idea that people have supported often very vociferously and punished other people for having heretical views on whether you ever get let's say a reckoning <laughs> or a admission that that someone was wrong. It seems very people. It seems very difficult for human beings to admit that they were wrong. It is difficult. I. I mean, it's difficult in our own lives uh, to try to become more honest and consistent 
to not lie in the first place about anything to 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 say sorry when you've done something intentionally or unintentionally that has caused upset and harm without reacting defensively. These are really difficult things to achieve. <laughs> so I think one of one of the real issues in today's society is not only alienation from, you know, your work, but alienation in general and commoditization of, of identity means that we do not view the other as a dialectical divided subject. Mm. We need the other psychoanalysis functions because it's basically an experience of recognition recognition only functions so recognition is that which develops your subjectivity as a child you have a parent who fucks up a bit recognizing you and you are in their eyes existing you enter into language when we are you know so many i mean this is something that's particularly true since covid we're all remote every relationship is a parasocial relationship we all you know, everybody's guilty of this. You, you, you don't see a person, you see their presence on social media. These, what we have are commoditized versions of people who therefore do not exist to recognize us. Therefore, we feel more and more and more unrecognized and in, unstable in our identity. It's not just that, you know, we're alienated from, from our work, we're commoditized. It's that the commoditization of the other person means that we are not recognized and that we do not experience solidity in subjectivity. And that leads us to do all kinds of, you know, things to try to shore ourselves up. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is is actually terrifying. I mean, I, I do think personally, like if I didn't share a house with another human being uh, and had I spent the whole of lockdown up to now on my own, I, I'd be very deranged. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I mean, more than I am already. Yeah, no, no. I mean, this sounds like a religious thing, cause it, or like a metaphysical thing, because it's not just like, oh, other people are nice and having other people mm. around makes you feel good. It's like, no, this is essential for you as a subject to not completely fall apart. Yeah. The, and this is to do with language and recognition, not to do with like, oh, I like hanging out with my sister because she puts me in a good mood. It's like, no, you need other people to exist. Well, and, and this is the thing, this question about are people good or bad, you know, people have the potential to do all sorts of things, but they need a lot of help from other people to do anything at all. Mm. If you don't have other people, you go insane and you can't function. So yeah. when we have a state which is predicated on the, on the idea that the individual exists outside of social relations and you can talk to the individual independent of everything else that's going around on around them and say, do this, do that. Here's my justification. Please accept. It's a fundamentally false understanding of how people work that you know, liberal individualism is grounded on this idea that there's you know, some kind of dialogue between the state, and the individual and individuals can be left on their own to come up with a civil society and they'll just produce one on their own that will be adequate. Uh, that doesn't happen unless no. the state curates, unless the state encourages and makes space for and funds and builds spaces which accommodate uh, forms of civil society, they die out. Yeah, and then you end up with like uh, the state putting out posters saying, be kind. Which is what we had. Yeah, no, literally. And you have you have a greater and greater and greater lunge for um, 
an attempt at recognition, which is not a natural recognition that exists between the normal interaction of human subjects, but rather a recognition under capitalism, a recognition under the big other. The big other is not divided. Therefore, it is not recognition, it's commoditization. So when you're like, I am X, Y, Z, blah, 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 accumulating identities, it won't work in the same way as speaking to other people because the big other is not divided. And this has an economic dimension because when you privatize all the functions of the state, the private Mm -hmm. company interfaces with the consumer, with the customer as an individual. Mm -hmm. The private company doesn't have to make something which fits into a larger social picture of how we're all meant to get along and meant to be socialized. None of that generates any kind of revenue for private company. So if you turn over the management of, say, some big block of space to a private company, they'll fill it up with a bunch of shops. They won't leave it open as a big space where everybody can gather and and come up with stuff. They'll fill it up with a bunch of shops, and each of those shops will satisfy particular individuals in narrow, limited ways, ignoring everybody's need to be able to gather together in a place. Can we we go back to our our ongoing discussion about bureaucracy versus tyrants or the personal character of, uh, I don't know, like let's say Catholic monarchies or what it means to have a a recognisable figurehead who is symbolic, but also a real person, right? Like the, the, you know, the two bodies thing, amongst other things. But, you know, at, at least, <laughs> how do I put this? Uh, if you have a, a, um, some kind of top-down vertical system where the hierarchy is uh, socially reproduced i don't know whether we're talking about feudalism or monarchy or whatever some combination of the two there is space for these sorts of spaces like the festival or the fate or the common ground or you know i don't know how to put it like the yeah i mean the noblesse oblige thing in a way like the the possibility for a kind of not just temporary reversal in the carnivalesque sense, and I, I understand that there is a lot of criticism of that in the you know from a Marxist perspective. Of course, inverting power relations for a day at the fate is not the same as a revolution <laughs> that redistributes. Um, but I, I still want to say that that perhaps you know having a, a manor house and having parties and fates and festivals and and celebrating the harvest and nature and the and the kind of you know pre-apic sort of spring moment in the in the novel in a way still has more allure <laughs> than I mean, the endless this, <laughs> is why, kind of, this is also why by the, to, to bring it back to tammy faye baker who we haven't spoken about for a while but blah blah is that you know we talked about like are these just liberal people who were ahead of their time and it was this is where it's never going to go i actually think there's something highly emancipatory in what they were doing in the sheer waste in the sheer like their fucking you know just excess their christmas shows their tv stations like you could argue that okay they were they were they had to be cancelled because they were doing what everyone was doing in the 80s and being really like uh, prosperity preaching and having too much money and da 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 and they needed to be cancelled not only to make mainstream society to, to feel better but also you know most especially televangelism and also you know televangelism was tied to the moral majority and these people were more liberal so you know they had to go but i actually think there's something just about the sheer nonsense waste and excess mm. that is so threatening yeah that precisely because it's it's, it's emancipatory but anyway 
Yeah. Well, this is better. But there are different types of excess, just like there are different types of cyclical theories of history, right? I mean, like, I had a friend of mine from Britain come out, uh, finally, because finally it's become possible to get on flights again, uh, get on planes. Mm -hmm. So a friend of mine comes out, and I decide to take him to the county fair, because we have a county fair, and I haven't been there in 20, 25 years since I was a kid, but I go, you know... He had to see this because it's a weird thing. So I take him to the county fair. And when you do a fair under you know, conditions of capitalism, you get something that's very different from the kind of, of body, pagan, Celtic, you know, the things that we imagine, medieval you know, kind of thing. You get you know, a bunch of carts and the carts sell things. And you go to the carts and you buy stuff and... You know, what's a fair? Well, all the carts are in one spot. On an ordinary weekend, they might be scattered across, you know, the whole county and might be at all sorts of different events, little events. Uh, but now because there's a fair, look, they're all together. All the food carts are together. And a lot of them sell the same crap as one another. But there's a large enough number of people at the fair that, you know, at least that cuts the lines down a bit. Uh, but, you know, you look at most of the games and most of them are, are casino games for children. It's, you know, yeah, you can you know, shoot your water gun at this thing. And maybe if enough other kids have shot their water guns at it, you might be able to knock it off and maybe you'll get it. But most likely you'll just shoot your water at it. It'll move a quarter of an inch and nothing will be accomplished. Or you shoot this basketball into these you know rims that have been modified to make it deceptively look as if you can get the basketball into the rim when you really can't. You know, it's, it's basically an open air casino for children with a bunch of repetitive food carts. And the, the one bit, the one bit that's interesting is the animal pens mm. where the 4-H kids have set up their animal pens, but they've put them all together. So you go into the, you know, the, the, uh, to view the pigs, for instance, and the, the smell of the pigs completely overwhelms you. Uh, and it's just pig pen, pig pen, pig pen, all in a row, back to back to back, because, you know, space is a, a commodity and space is scarce and there's only so much room for these pig pens. So you can't even enjoy it. Uh, it feels like you've walked into an animal factory or something. It's actually rather upsetting if you're not someone who has become accustomed to it by going into these environments all the time. Uh, you know, my girlfriend, whose family, you know, they're pig farmers, so she has no problem hanging out and going around and looking at all the pigs. But the rest of us are like, oh, geez, this is a little <laughs> much, isn't it? Uh, you know, this is the kind of, of big, excessive festival that you get under mm. conditions of capitalism. It's not really accomplishing no really, yeah. what excess is meant to accomplish so yeah. would, what to, to, just to I say would one day shut up about these people but Jim and Tammy in a certain sense were not abiding by they because basically they were like capitalism put them out of business but they were, they were heeding the voice of God and just going for it and yes, I mean, capitalism put them out of business, but they did it for like a few, a little period of time, like not actually adhering to the laws of the market at all, but finding sort of ways to kind of like ask for money. If you, if you went, if they went, if you went to that theme park, how mm. different would it really have been from going to the county fair? No, well, the thing is they, they didn't, they were like, it was, these things were like a loss making entity, right? It was, uh, I'm not saying it was like, magically different because obviously they were taken down eventually by the fact that they you know Jerry Falwell put them into um 
uh, receivership, what do you call it, when you mm-hmm. when you run out of money. But um, I don't know. I think they had they, they had built like it a, too big. They, okay, what they did as well, they had like for instance, they had a, a home. They did all these things that were sort of like good works, you know, because you know they had to do that quite a bit. But like there was a a, a a home for young unwed mothers. There was a home for this disabled kid that was supposed to be for loads of disabled kids, but then eventually because they didn't do the health and safety stuff properly, it could only be lived in by one disabled kid, and it was like this mansion. So it was quite it was quite unusual. <laughs> and it couldn't work for very long. But I don't know. It was just Nina's point about like there was something magical about it. Yeah, I I think this is is a major question. It's like, what do you do with the excess? Uh, there are different excesses. I mean, a lot of Bataille's work is dedicated to this question of excess, and and you know, the sovereign in a way for Bataille is the one who has to deal with the excess, and it's a problem. Um, and even our existence is something that is given to us that is too much, <laughs> if you like. Like, it's not a question of lack, despite the name of our show, but rather yeah, a question of... It's, that... <laughs> it's excess because of lack, but it is, it is yeah. excess. It's totally excess, yeah. Exactly. And in a way, like he says, the sun gives us more than we could ever repay back. And, you know, it's only the poet and the philosopher who are mad enough to try and repay the sun. You know, of course, I love this uh, uh, line. Um, That's great. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's, Bataille is fantastic. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I went to two different festivals this weekend, speaking of festivals. I went to WOMAD, which is World of Music and Dance, which is Peter Gabriel, uh, obviously famous 80s musician, but also uh, head of Real World Studio and very responsible for bringing world music to commercial, you know, awareness. Uh, and this festival, yeah, has been going for 40 years. My parents go every year. They live nearby where it is now in Wiltshire. It used to be in Reading. Uh, it's a four day thing. It's very big. It's, uh, very green. It's, uh, you know, very lefty liberal, but in a slightly old school way. And it was actually very interesting to see the kind of people who go to WOMAD. Uh, if you like world music, it, it has a lot of problems, <laughs> uh, ideologically. Uh, there are many things you could say about world music. A lot of it is very interesting, of course. And, and, you know, so, so on the one hand, you have, uh, Peter Gabriel and the whole team bringing and have been bringing uh, and releasing records by bands from all over the world who would not otherwise have this level of distribution or awareness, right? So bringing these great bands from like Ghana, parts of South America, Japan, wherever, you know, to the world's attention, including lots of uh, Muslim musicians and so on. At the same time, very clearly, this is part of a globalization project and also a homogenization of these individual cultures like the moment you start recording music of course you destroy it you destroy the folk nature this was already going on a long time before peter gabriel he's not to blame for for this right but but it's a problem of technology it's a problem of the homogenizations of cultures so at the very moment as you try and preserve the folk aspect and of course some folks are uh, are acceptable and others are not uh, you you don't have uh, white nationalist folk bands at <laughs> womad of course uh, even though there are, you know, plenty of traditions there that could be tapped into, you, you, it is rather a celebration of the the exotic, you know, the exotic folk. Let's say the exotic culture, and the people who go to Wemad are largely uh, white middle class people who are perhaps uh, more. Gen X and Boomer, kind of uh, quite PC, but in that old-fashioned way, not in the online way, but rather in this kind of well-meaning, green environmentalist, you know, probably Guardian reading, uh, 
you know, but they're still up for, let's say, discussion and talking to people they disagree with. I spoke on a panel about men. I, I was my usual honest self. I wasn't trying to be overly provocative. Uh, but, you know, I, I say what I what I think, you know, which isn't necessarily in keeping with what we are supposed to say about uh, men who, but boo, you know. Um, and there was a woman on the panel who's a sort of famous uh, journalist, speaker person. I, I don't really know her, but she's quite a big deal. And she was basically saying the woke line, you know, and sometimes people would sort of robotically clap whenever she said things about, well, we're not talking about men, we're talking about white masculinity. And this is also about race. And, you know, periodically a small part of the audience would, would clap because the, you know, the dictator had said the thing that you're supposed to clap at. Um, but what we did have was a good conversation. There were two men on the panel. One was a comedian, another was a writer uh, and a journalist. And we actually managed to have a proper discussion also with the audience where there was disagreement, uh, where there was visible disagreement. Nobody got outraged. Nobody got upset. Nobody, you know, lost it. Um, we were all very civil, but it was a disagreement and we had it in public and people joined in and said their piece. Um, and it was very interesting. And I thought there are still people here, the kind of people who would go to this festival. And there are 200 people in the intellectual bit, the ideas bit, which is also surprising. I thought everyone would be watching the music or dancing. Um, there's an appetite for it, therefore. Um, all, a very long-winded way of saying that, that I think there is hope. <laughs> yeah. um, partly through these experiences of realising that people do actually want to have discussions with people that they disagree with. And this was my experience of this festival, even though there were many things about it that I'd found aesthetically and personally slightly objectionable um, at a, yeah, it was almost like an aesthetic and, and political level. You know, there's a kind of syncretic spiritualism, which is, is rather liberal in its kind of pick and mix way uh you know there is a there is a kind of slight smugness to to perhaps a sort of middle class kind of idea that that you know we can save the planet by doing certain little things you know like there is something to challenge in these positions um at the same time i i find it very enjoyable and interesting and the, and the music indeed some of the music i saw was absolutely fan fantastic um, where it didn't descend into kind of cliche. I then very quickly, mm -hmm. I went also to the house of a member of Pink Floyd, who is a multimillionaire, of course, uh, probably a multi-multimillionaire, I don't even know, uh, who every year opens his house up, not his actual house, but the gardens, because he also collects uh, very, very, very expensive cars, like, uh, you know, the most beautiful uh, cars from 50s onwards. So, so racing cars and I don't know, these, I'm not, into cars. My, my father used to be a racing driver. My father is very, 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 very into cars. He was very excited to go to this festival. He knew everything about each car. He spent a long time talking about this particular Ginetta or this particular, I don't know, uh, sort of model something, some type Jaguar, whatever. You know, he was very, very uh, into it. And it, on some level, this was like a noblesse oblige thing. This was like I am neo-aristocracy, just like Peter Gabriel is neo-aristocracy. This is somebody who talks to politicians who, you know, is, is sort of like a charity, philanth global philanthropist person. I will open my house to the proles. So like everyone from, it was very popular, the Nick Mason thing, the Pink Floyd guy. Loads and loads of local people there. Hundreds and hundreds. It was completely packed. It was all for charity, of course, for the air ambulance service. Um, it was very striking to see this kind of gesture, right? 
I've got all this stuff. I, I, I made too much money as a pop star in the 60s. I spent it all on these unbelievably beautiful cars. And even I can understand that these cars are beautiful, right? Like I don't have to like cars or be interested in them to understand that these are objects of rarity, beauty, skill, design, craft. You know, they, they clearly are objects of reverence um, that are very significant and symbolic uh, and probably wonderful to, to drive if you like that sort of thing. Um, but it was this kind of gesture. It was like, here is my wealth. I would like you to enjoy my my wealth. Whereas WOMAD was more complicated. It was very expensive. WOMAD is very expensive. This is not a free festival for local people. I think they might get a discount or something. The only uh, working class people on the WOMAD site were the people who were working in the camping shop. And everybody else was manifestly middle class in terms of their appearance and you know, their aesthetics and, and so on. And of course, I'm generalizing, but it was a completely different audience than the working class people who come out, the local rural people to see the pop stars cars. And I don't know what to make of this <laughs> dialectic. Well, it is to do with the repression of contradiction, you know, in liberalism. That's, you know, but we've talked about that so many times. I just want to, could I just say before the end, because like I, I have a sort of, feel like I haven't this is this is just the nature of language which is the perpetual excuse but it's also true because I kind of feel like in relation to um the novel I really wanted to uh, make a point about its treatment of sexuality the contingent nature of sexuality under ideology today and the actual nature of sexuality like philosophically and I didn't have time to do it because I really didn't get it in the opening. So maybe I'll think about it and next time incorporate it in my opening bit because I didn't do a very good job. Well, that's the wonderful nature of this show. We can always syncretically combine things across different episodes. We had references to Tammy Faye. We had references to all sorts of old stuff on this on this episode. So I hope everybody enjoyed. And if you didn't catch some of those references, do go through the back catalog and have a look. We're going to go over and do the B-site now uh, for the Patreon listeners. So thank you guys so much for listening. And have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.